Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I, I never felt more like a hooker down by the bus station than I uh, did when I was running uh, for the Supreme Court. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. The 2016 elections are over. But what did we learn from the results? Over the past 11 months, Life of the Law's team of reporters, editors, and scholars have been taking a hard look at how money and an increase in spending by special interest groups has played a role in the outcome of elections for judges on state Supreme Courts. And those outcomes may impact our shared access to our state courts, courts that are supposed to represent fairness in the law and the highest ideals of justice. We call our series A Fair Fight for a Fair Court, and now we're presenting all five stories with updates in two hour-long special feature episodes on Life of the Law. The first hour is today. Part two will be presented in two weeks. Let's begin part one with reporter Ashley Cleek's story, Revolution in a Cornfield. The Kansas Supreme Court has been at the center of a historic fight between the three branches of Kansas' state government. And that fight has centered around Kansas's ever-tightening budget and how much it truly costs and how much the state would spend to educate children. Ashley Cleek has our story. It's probably been a while since you were in first grade. But some things haven't changed too much. This is Miss Montini's class at Mark Twain Elementary School in Kansas City, Kansas. Seventeen truly adorable six-year-olds are eating marshmallow hearts while Miss Montini counts backward. Her students quickly arrange themselves cross-legged on an alphabet letter carpet, ready to read Pete the Cat. Who are we studying this week? Who's our author? Pete the Cat. Like the rest of the U.S., the demographics of Kansas are changing. Kansas City, which was historically a mix of white and black working-class families, is now home to a lot of families that have recently immigrated to the U.S. English is the second, sometimes third, language of all 17 students. Many of the kids in Miss Montini's class live in poverty. They receive free or reduced lunch at school, plus breakfast and an afternoon snack. Some of their smiles flash with tiny metal caps that cover rotting baby teeth. A student named Dennis has only been in Kansas and in class for a month. His black hair flops softly over his forehead as he reaches down to play with his shoes. His eyes flash from nervous curiosity to excitement. Dennis is a refugee from Burma and is studying English for the first time. Everyone try this part with me. Read that. Just do your best, she said. Just tell Larry why he is cool. When the class reads along with Miss Montini, Dennis mouths the words, too. Dennis, do you know what this is? Say, a car. A car. So Rob likes cars. Can you say that? But this isn't just a classroom where a diverse group of kids is learning to read. This classroom, and many others, are at the heart of a debate about how much money Kansas should put into public schools. 
a debate that comes down to a fight over nothing less than the balance of power among the three branches of government. Yeah, so let's work backwards. Last year, Kansas's governor, Sam Brownback, cut K-12 education funding by about $41 million. And at Mark Twain Elementary School, Katie Agiti saw how the cuts affected her students. Agiti's been the principal here for eight years. Uh, we have less personnel to do the job that we need to do, and I would argue more needy population than we've had. Uh, so a needier population and less personnel to do the job. For example, Agiti says, there are 29 kids in each of the third grade classes and 25 kids in each of the school's two kindergartens. In previous years, Agiti would have hired another teacher and split the classes up. But this year, Agiti says, there isn't enough money. So the kids stay put and teachers make do. Last year, in addition to the funding cuts, the legislature got rid of the school funding formula the state had used for decades and froze each school's funds in place for the next two years. It's the beginning of February, and Aguidi says things feel strained. Just today, a little girl named Jessie from Guatemala started fourth grade. Jessie speaks no English, but within a year, she will be expected to perform like a native speaker. Aguidi worries that the money for extra support, like tutors or another Spanish aid, isn't there. It's likely the little girl won't score well at all on national reading or math tests. It's one thing to come to kindergarten with limited English, but when you come at a higher grade level, it's hard to, how do you really get on board? Especially when you compile that with the less staffing. Ten minutes into our interview, Agiti's eyes fill with tears. She says she feels intense pressure to do more with less money. I think it is overwhelming to look at all the needs, be they poverty or... Agiti gets up and closes the door to the conference room. She doesn't want her staff to see her cry. My little Dennis, he needs everything. For a refugee like Dennis, Agiti says, Mark Twain Elementary serves as not just his, but his family's first source of education about life in the U.S. Agiti says the school often helps new families find a place to live, feed their children, and understand American laws and customs. So it's a whole wraparound need medical services, dental services, vision services. It's, it's really big if you look at it, it's really big. The county where Agiti's school is, Wyandotte, is both the most diverse county in Kansas and the poorest. More than 81% of students receive free and reduced lunch. The superintendent of the school system, Cynthia Lane, says she thinks about this often, especially in the winter when she has to decide whether or not to close schools for a snow day. For me, there's another decision that, that really um, makes it more difficult to close schools. It's the fact that many of our children won't have food um, the, whole, the day that the school is closed. They count on coming to school for their meals. Lane has worked in the Kansas City, Kansas school system on and off for 30 years. She and her district are one of the plaintiffs in the current lawsuit arguing the state of Kansas is not funding schools adequately or equitably. A fourth of Kansas's spending goes to kindergarten through 12th grade education, about 6% more than the national average. It's a lot of money. And how much education funding should be and how it should be divided has long been tense in Kansas. Alan Roop is a lawyer representing the four school districts who have sued the state. 
In fact, he's been involved in school funding lawsuits for almost three decades. Roop was born and raised in Kansas. He's always described himself as a Republican. But in Kansas, he says, he's now pegged as a liberal. Because according to Roop, the state is tilting more and more to the right. I am the same moderate Republican today I was uh, then. And in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas, I'm known as a raving liberal. And my politics haven't changed. Back in 1999, at the request of several school districts, Roop and his team sued the state in a case commonly known as Montoy, after one of the student plaintiffs. Roop argued that the state was not funding schools adequately. In 2005, the Kansas Supreme Court agreed and told the legislature to increase funding. Roop pulls out exhibit number 237 and points to a line on a graph. And if you look, you can see when the Montoy decision uh, occurred. After Montoy, funding went up, and up again the next school year, too. And, Roop says, as funding rose, so did test scores, and the gulf between poor students and wealthy students started to narrow. Superintendent Lane remembers this influx of funding. In Kansas City, class sizes went down. Lane hired more tutors, more counselors. All of those kinds of things that children who particularly come from environments that uh, are not wealthy need. Then, in 2008, the global recession hit Kansas, like everywhere else. And the legislature started to cut. Initially, $511 million disappeared from education. Lane's district lost $11 million. So that meant 400 people lost their jobs. 130 of those were classroom teachers. And the rest came from support divisions that supported student and family services. So services that help recently immigrated families, like Dennis. Plus counseling, um, extracurricular, tutoring kinds of things, and um, fewer bus drivers, custodians were cut. It was uh, a really devastating time to, to navigate through. And then since that time, cuts have continued to happen. In 2010, Kansas City, Kansas, and three other districts asked Roop to file a new lawsuit called Gannon versus Kansas. They argued that the state still wasn't funding public schools adequately, meaning not enough money in the overall budget, or equitably, that schools with needier students, like ESL students or special needs students, weren't getting their fair share of funding. Then, in 2012, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback decided to try out a new economic approach— his idea was to jumpstart the state's economy by attracting businesses through massive income tax cuts. Brownback called it the march to zero, as in zero income taxes. Brownback's economic advisor at the time called the plan, quote, a revolution in a cornfield. But the problem is, it's been three years, and the businesses and money still haven't come. The fact is, we're in Kansas, and uh, there are places like Texas and other states that have considerable income from people coming into the state. Uh, Kansas ranks next to last and sometimes last in terms of income from tourism. And so, with less tax money coming in, the legislature cut the state budget and education funding again. The shift has been from a consideration of what does it cost to educate a kid who is at risk and has special needs to what do I want to spend on kids that are at risk and have special needs? Uh, the, the emphasis on what the kid 
needs and what the educator needs to educate that kid uh, isn't there in the legislature. And, with, and when they make the decision that they're going to spend an amount that is independent of the needs of the kids, uh, it's the kids that lose. Um, so I, I see it as a fight for public education and a fight for Kansas future. And in this fight, one of the main contenders is Dave Traubert. None of this has to do with educating kids. It's about political control of money. Traubert is the president of the Kansas Policy Institute, often known in Kansas as KPI. KPI is a libertarian think tank. They champion low taxes and small government. And in this battle over public schools, Traubert's constantly on the offensive. He writes a blog in a local newspaper where he regularly gets in heated debates with dozens of commenters. Traubert disagrees with almost everything everyone in this story has said so far. And he says he has facts to prove it. You've probably heard that school funding has been cut in Kansas. We've seen a lot of national stories about that. It is flat not true. In fact, Traubert says that every year, funding to schools has gone up. So let's take a moment to break down some numbers. According to the Kansas Legislative Research Department, from 2011 to 2012, base aid fell about 150 bucks per student. This base aid number is the amount of money that goes just to instruction. It's the number that Kansas had long used to calculate how much money should be spent on students. But those aren't the numbers Traubert uses. Instead, Traubert cites numbers from the State Department of Education. Between the same years, according to the State Department of Ed, total spending per pupil, which includes federal aid and local money, went up by about $370 per student. These two numbers don't match, but both are true. Traubert's numbers include money for things like transportation, food, the teacher's retirement fund, and building and technology upgrades. Traubert argues that the schools have to manage the money they are given and spend more on students. What they talk, and this is the way, this is kind of, you have to understand government speak. When government doesn't get as much as it wants, that's a cut. Well, it's a school, so it's not government. It's government. I just think of it. I mean, I don't think of a school as Well, government. it's government. Of course it is. It's, whether it's a Department of Revenue or a Department of Education, uh, these are government-run schools, okay? So let's say when schools don't get as much of an increase as they want, they call it a cut. According to Traubert, superintendents, and Lane specifically, are mismanaging their money. They are not investing in students, and students are failing. Traubert says the achievement gap in Kansas is widening, and increasing money is not going to close it. Many people in the Kansas legislature seem to agree. Since 2009, the legislature has done efficiency audits on schools to see where they can trim their budgets. Superintendent Lane whose district includes Mark Twain Elementary, actually volunteered to be audited. I volunteered this school district. Biggest school district volunteered right out of the chute because we want other people looking at what we're doing and giving us ideas of how to get better while we're moving our kids forward. Lane says some of what the committee suggested she agreed with, like increasing the district's use of credit cards to make purchases and get rebates. But most of the things were cut she refused to make 
like cutting down on custodial staff and salaries and outsourcing transportation and food services to private companies. Lane says she has seen no evidence that the district would save a lot of money through a private company. Plus, she says, she likes that the bus drivers are local. They know the streets and the kids better. But Traubert says in order to jumpstart Kansas's public schools, the state needs to inject some competition from the private sector. One of the things that needs to be done in Kansas is we need some competition. Kansas also has one of the worst charter school laws in the country. We have no competition. Where's the incentive? Now, I understand no one gets up in the morning and says we're going to, you know, uh, I mean, school employees, that we're going to do a bad job. No one does that. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't have any competition, you don't have any real incentive to get better. But this whole fight about education funding, it's not confined to superintendents and policy wonks. In fact, the battle has moved into the Kansas government, pitting one branch against another. Judith Didi and her husband moved to Kansas about 10 years ago to be closer to family. At the time, their three kids were young, all under the age of three. Didi had always heard that Kansas had great public schools, especially in Johnson County, one of the wealthiest zip codes in America. We live one block into Kansas. I like the Missouri, the, the homes one block that way. They're lovely, but their public schools are really struggling. And we wanted public schools to be a strong option. So we live one block into Kansas in the Shawnee Mission School District. Dee Dee and her family moved into a two-story yellow house with a swing in the front yard. Dee Dee has a law degree, but she decided to stay home and focus on being a mom for a while. I didn't follow local politics. I would look at yard signs of people I respected and figure that's who I should vote for. I looked at postcards to kind of make sure, you know, public education was on the list, which, of course, it always is. <laughs> so guilty, you know. I mean, I, that's, that's who I was and, and what I thought qualified as being a responsible citizen. When her eldest child, Kathleen, enrolled in school, Dee Dee joined the PTA. This was 2008 or 2009, during the recession, and Dee Dee learned that the school district needed to cut about $10 million. Dee Dee says the district asked parents to fill out a survey. It said, We need to cut $10 million. What, what would you cut? And they, they had all these items, and they had dollar numbers next to them. I went through and I marked a few things that I thought, okay, I could live without that. But then I was done, and I think I was at $1 million. <laughs> The school district made some big cuts. 10 elementary school teachers, 20 middle school teachers, and 20 high school teachers, plus 16 social workers, several school police officers, and a bunch of other services, like intramural sports at all elementary and middle schools and all special ed teaching assistants. But Dee Dee says when she would see local news, the governor and legislators didn't seem to mention how school budgets were suffering. And that's, that was the red flag to me. Um, and that's what some people who'd been in it longer than me and, and more on the politics side of things said, do you see what they're saying? Do you, do you think they're going to put this money back when the recession ends? And we don't think they are. And I thought, well, I don't know. And now I know. <laughs> Dee Dee started watching state politics. 
In 2012, when Governor Sam Brownback passed his sweeping tax cuts, she and other parents got nervous. She says the PTA became something closer to an activist group. They started calling themselves Game On for Kansas Schools, and they've become a loose coalition of parents and educators across the state. Dee Dee says since 2011, her kids' schools have seen cuts. They lost some math and reading tutors. Some classes have crowded to 25 kids. Dee Dee reminds me that her district is wealthy. They have high property values, so they're not hit nearly as hard as a district like Kansas City. Plus, she says, Okay, so probably there was some inefficiency, some room for tightening belts. For instance, the school got rid of a fourth grade program that taught kids how to play stringed instruments, like the violin. No big deal, right? It's not like you have to learn the violin to get a good education. You could eliminate fourth grade strings, and within a few years, nobody even remembers that you had fourth grade strings. But you start realizing, when, when are we going to stop? with this part of it. When, when do we get to rebuild? Now, Dee Dee follows politics in Kansas doggedly. She testifies in front of the legislature. She's staged three 60-mile marches from Kansas City to Topeka in support of public education. She monitors bills. She reads court briefs. She is a woman determined to decipher this debate over public education. She's even made a list of catchphrases she's heard legislators use. And she tells me what she thinks they actually mean and what she thinks of them. We want more money into the classroom. That means I already think our schools are overfunded and I will not vote for an additional dollar of school funding. I just want you to reallocate the money you already have. Um, I support education. That may not mean they support public education. Right now, Dee Dee is looking to how the Supreme Court will decide the new school funding case. She says she feels the courts are the last barrier, stopping the legislature from slowly defunding public education. It matters that you have a Supreme Court that will look at the Constitution and say that public education is the one specific service they have said you must make suitable provision for the finance of the education interests of the state. And so it's really important to have, have a body that says, no, you, you can make all kinds of decisions, but this is something you have to do. And because that matters, because we know how important it is to have educated citizens. In fact, Dee Dee believes that this fight over education funding has morphed into a battle for the court system. And Alan Roop, the lawyer in the school funding case, agrees. Roop says that instead of figuring out how to better fund public education, the legislature passes new laws concerning the judicial branch to try to influence how the justices will rule on education cases. And instead of rolling up their sleeves and sitting down and figuring out what are the actual costs that we need to pay in order to provide kids an adequate education in Kansas, they react in all kinds of other ways and start figuring out how to, how to uh, uh, keep the judges from being able to decide the cases. Uh, they want to appoint the judges a different way. In the past few years, there have been bills to lower the retirement age for justices on the Supreme Court. 
or to change how the justices on the Supreme Court are selected. They want to elect the judges. They'll do anything they can other than pay the actual cost of educating kids to an adequate level. Um, I fully expect them sometime to adopt a law that if you've got a four-letter name, four-letter name that starts with an R, you're not going to be able to be uh, an attorney in a school finance case. Roop, of course, is spelled R-U-P-E. Little lawyer joke. Senator Jeff King says this is ludicrous. He agrees that the tension between the legislative and judicial branches is real, but not in any way related to the debate over school funding. Certain people that want to create a crisis where none exist saying every time you do anything to the judicial branch while there's any school finance case pending, that means you're trying to pay them back. We have interactions with the court system all the time. We should. That's how a legislative and judicial branch work. Uh, we're going to have give and take in that process. Uh, it's not related to any school finance litigation. In fact, King found himself in the heat of this debate when he passed a bill saying that the Supreme Court would no longer have the authority to select the chief judges in Kansas's 31 judicial districts. Instead, local judges would pick. But some of those local judges actually saw this as an unconstitutional encroachment on the power of the judiciary. So they hired a lawyer. My name is Pedro Luis Irigone Garay, and I happen to be in love with Kansas. Aragonagarai filed a lawsuit on behalf of these local judges, saying that the bill that made them pick their own chief judges was a constitutional violation of the Supreme Court's authority. Then, the legislature tacked on another bill. It said that if the new law about local judges was declared unconstitutional, then the entire budget of the judicial branch would be zeroed out and reassessed by the legislature. What the Supreme Court said, in essence, states, even though this could potentially do away with our budget. The rule of law is clear. And in order to maintain a Republican style of government, we need three independent branches and an intrusion of such substantive nature cannot and will not be tolerated. In short order, a court declared that that bill about local judges was indeed unconstitutional. And everyone freaked out. The courts, the attorney general, and Aragonagarai. Aragonagarai also believes that the root cause of all this is education. And which branch of government has the power to decide what level of school funding is adequate? The three branches of government always live with some degree of tension with one another, which is what makes our democracy work. It is when irresponsibility and a power grab occurs that we must be vigilant to protect those important separation of powers, which is what occurred in Kansas. Senator King says this is flat out wrong. In fact, King points to the fact that the legislature just passed a bill funding the courts at record levels. Yes, he says, there is tension between the legislature and the judiciary. But that's how government works. The Supreme Court has yet to decide whether Kansas is adequately funding its public schools. 
Right now, schools are frozen at last year's funding levels. In fact, the Supreme Court recently declared that that was unconstitutional and that the legislature has to fix it before the next school year. While I was in Kansas, I visited four school districts, two wealthy and suburban, two poor and urban. And everyone said they were hurting. Many districts had been unable to fill teaching positions. In fact, last year, a school district in Missouri rented two billboards along Kansas's highways, promising great pay and jobs, in an attempt to lure teachers struggling in the face of budget cuts to move across the state line. And of course, in the midst of all this, life in Kansas goes on. At an eighth-grade basketball game at Northwest Middle School in Kansas City, the bleachers are packed, the concession stand crowded, and cheerleaders do hopeful toe touches. On the sidelines, I meet Marie Freeman, cheering on her great-grandson. She's wearing a you-can't-hide-that-tiger pride t-shirt that she just bought to support the team. After the game, Marie invited me over to her house for lunch. This is another generation. Now, this is, this is me. I'm the mother. This is my daughter, that's my granddaughter, and that's Rashad, the one that's on the basketball team. So that's a four-generation picture. Marie has two kids, five grandkids, and two great-grandkids. She was a foster mother and a substitute teacher. After basketball games, if she sees a hungry look on a kid's face, she'll buy him a snack or candy, anything but soda. She buys backpacks and shoes and coats and drops them off at local schools. And she loves her grandson like mad. I'm active in whatever school. My great-grandson's in the eighth grade. He'll be going to the ninth grade, which is high school. Oh, that high school's going to see me. They're going to know me. Long as the Lord has given me able body to walk, to talk, to do what I need to do, each school will, will get a piece of me. Freeman's seen the cuts, the old uniforms, the firing of custodians, teaching aides, and teachers. Freeman says she doesn't follow politics that closely in general, but she's frustrated about schools. She's mad at the school boards, the superintendents, the legislature, and the governor. She says you have to look at kids as whole human beings. You, you got to look at the child, the inward child, not even the outward child, but what do they need inward? How you can help them without cutting funds, and they're going to cut these kids. So they're going to give them less education. But I think what the politicians don't realize these kids are going to be your next generation. They're going to be on you because you're going to get old. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen to you when you get old and you have to be in a nursing home and you got these uneducated kids? The students, to me, they look like a dollar sign these days because you get so much money per child. But you got to look at the kids beyond a dollar sign. The Kansas Supreme Court will likely rule this year about whether or not the state's education funding is adequate. A lot of money is at stake, about $500 million. Not to mention the future of about 486,000 kids. For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Gleek.
You're listening to part one of Life of the Law's special election year series on a fair fight for a fair court. We just heard Ashley Cleek's story, Revolution in a Cornfield, about the retention election of justices on Kansas's state Supreme Court. Ultimately, voters in Kansas decided to retain all five justices by comfortable margins. They rejected the influence of increased spending by partisan special interest groups and their attempt to influence the courts. That paves the way for continued struggle between the legislature, the governor, and the state courts over how to fund education in Kansas. Moving on to the second story in our series, Rig the System, reporter Jonathan Hurst traveled to Ohio, where they have a very different system for selecting justices who sit on their state Supreme Court. In Kansas, as we just heard, they use what's called merit selection. Voters decide yes or no whether to retain a justice already on the court. But in Ohio, it's different. Their justices stand for what's called open election. That means they run against someone else for a seat on the state Supreme Court, or in some cases, they run for the seat unopposed, but they still have to be elected to the court. Like in Kansas this year, money poured into the judicial races in Ohio. And like in Kansas, a major issue was and will continue to be before the Ohio State Supreme Court. In Kansas, the issue of school funding highlighted the rift between branches of state government. But in Ohio, the issue of fracking and who has the authority to drill and where highlighted the struggle between the state and local governments. In Ohio, there's something known as home rule. That means locals and their local government have the power to govern themselves as long as it doesn't come in conflict with state and federal law. Seems clear enough, but it can get murky. And in that murkiness, money and the power of organized lobbying on state courts ends up before the state's highest court. And in Ohio, it's all about fracking and the oil boom. In this second story in our series on a fair fight for a fair court, Life of the Law's Jonathan Hirsch has the story. Drilling for oil promises big things for people in a state like Ohio. Wealth for local landowners, free oil for people who lease their land, an influx of new jobs. But to some in northeastern Ohio, all of that sounds like it might be too good to be true. As for drilling itself, what it actually sounds like is this. This is what Pat McCrudden says she's been hearing from her front porch of her home every night, all night, for the past three years. It's the sound of a fracking well. Fracking is a specific way of drilling for natural gas, where liquid is injected at high pressures deep into the ground. The liquid breaks apart the rock, which releases the natural gas. And it's controversial because, among other things, it uses a lot of water, can lead to pollution, and may even cause earthquakes. McCrudden lives in a small suburban community about 10 miles from Youngstown, Ohio. It's called Westwood Lake. And according to McCrudden, the well has brought all kinds of things to Westwood Lake. Noise, traffic from waste disposal trucks, felling of the trees that used to grow right across from her front porch. McCrudden says she didn't want the well, but that she and her neighbors at the Westwood Lake Mobile Home Park weren't consulted about it. Did you try to stop it at all? Was oh there my, you tried to uh, do? let me tell you, I went to the county commissioners. I went to the uh, township trustees. Uh, I went up the ladder with uh, Capri Caffaro. She's representative in the state of Ohio, Senator Caffaro. In 
2013, State Senator Capri Cafaro's office arranged a meeting with representatives from the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, the state agency that regulates oil and gas leases. Also, FYI, for the rest of the story, we'll be calling the agency the ODNR, since this is how most Ohioans refer to it. And uh, the top five men came in and sat down, and then we started talking to each other, and I said, who's responsible for permitting this? This guy says, I am. And I says, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Putting that over there, there's 335 homes in this whole area here, and it's very compacted. It's a mobile home park. I says, what are you, what are you doing that for? And I says, the noise and everything that we've had, the lights. McCredden says the representative seems sympathetic but not enough to shut down the well. And McCredden's situation is pretty common in northeastern Ohio. A resident can object to a well in their town, but if the ODNR has already approved it, there's little that can be done. In Ohio, the ODNR is the authority that decides the placement of well sites. But then, the city of Monroe Falls, 40 miles from McCredden's house, sued an energy company for attempting to drill a fracking well in their town. Suddenly, Pat McCredden, and a whole lot of other people in Ohio were paying close attention to Monroe Falls. For an energy company to drill a well, first, they've got to get landowners to sign a lease. And if you're a landowner, there are some perks. At the time, we wanted it, yeah. Because he said that we'd get free gas, you know, for the house. That's all I know about it, because my husband always did all the talking, you know. That's Donna Willingham, a resident of Monroe Falls, a small city of about 5,000 people on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. In 2011, Donna's husband, Joe Willingham, reached out to David Beck, the CEO of a 15-person company based in Ohio called Beck Energy. Joe wanted to negotiate a lease on the Willingham property. David Beck applied for a drilling permit with the ODNR. The ODNR gave its stamp of approval, and a deal was struck with the Willinghams. Donna Willingham says she and her husband trust David Beck. He's a, he's a sweetheart, he really is. And he's a Christian man and everything, and, and he's, he's really a good guy, in my opinion. But the city government of Monroe Falls said Beck Energy also needed to submit plans for its approval before any drilling could happen because of something in the Ohio Constitution known as home rule. In a nutshell, the Home Rule Amendment says that cities can create their own laws, as long as they don't interfere with state or federal laws. But Beck Energy refused to go through the city permitting process, citing changes made to Ohio's oil and gas leasing law in 2004. New language had given the ODNR, quote, the sole and exclusive authority, unquote, over drilling leases in the state. And Beck Energy said that this meant drilling was out of Monroe Falls' jurisdiction. So the city of Monroe Falls filed an injunction against Beck Energy's drilling operation in the Summit County Common Pleas Court. Donna Willingham doesn't think the city handled the situation well. Oh yeah, they were real buttheads about it. Oh really? Yeah, they were. What did they do? They just, the mayor we had, Mayor Larson, he was, he was, he just had his own opinions about everything and the well wasn't one of them. He just was so adamant about not, you know, drilling it. So it didn't happen. The city of Monroe Falls won, but then Beck Energy filed an appeal, and the case ended up at the Ohio State Supreme Court, where it would set a precedent for millions of dollars in oil and gas leases all over the state. 
Because it stood to have such big implications, a lot of people were paying attention. Like Michelle Garman of Vienna, Ohio. Vienna is a small township about 50 miles east of Monroe Falls. Michelle Garman lives on the state road that goes through town, next to a local airport. It's Michelle Garman. I've lived in Vienna for about, ooh, going on 16, 16, almost 17 years. Um, my husband's family has been on this land for five generations. Garmin says that she loves Vienna because it's always been a good place to raise her son, Dominic. He's 16. My son was born here in Vienna. Um, I enjoyed the smaller school, um, you know, the smaller close-knit community. Like I said, you know, every, I like the fact everybody knows each other. <laughs> my husband calls it me having my nose in everyone else's business, but I like it, so. In 2015, an injection well, the kind of well used to dispose of toxic waste generated from fracking, erupted down the street from her house. And a nearby pond was contaminated with a reported 2,000 gallons of waste. Still, Garmin says that even then, she didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how injection wells might negatively impact her community. Because I, I'm guilty of not paying attention until I found out one was going next to me. She does, however, remember the day she found out that an injection well was going to be built next door. But I think it was about two years ago, they put the legal notice in the paper and um, for the permit to get the injection well, uh, the permit to drill is what it would have been. And luckily, my husband, he actually reads the legal notices every day. Um, I can't bring myself to do it because it's boring. <laughs> Garmin and her husband wrote a letter of objection to the ODNR. Her husband, Tom, was so upset that he wanted to leave the area, to move away from the land where five generations of his family had lived. And he was furious. Uh, he was actually ready to pick up and leave. I mean, and I, it actually became kind of, it's still a contention between us. So we're like, I am no way, no how letting anybody push me off this land. <laughs> and he's more like, you know, I've had it. You know, they're going to just let the area go to crap. Garmin approached Vianna's township trustees, but they didn't take action against the drilling company. Unlike Monroe Falls, the township of Vianna left the decision to drill entirely up to the ODNR. And the problem being, the only other people left to object to it here would have been the airport on the other side, and there's a vacant property across the street. Um, after that, there's there was really no more neighbors, <laughs> so... Tom Houlihan is an attorney and a resident of Monroe Falls. He also represented the city before the Ohio State Supreme Court in Monroe Falls versus Beck Energy in 2014. For 100 years prior to 2004, Ohio had a system where cities determined where within the, their boundaries oil and gas wells could go. During the oral arguments, Houlihan argued that Beck Energy should have approached the city government of Monroe Falls instead of going around it. According to Houlihan, even if the state oil and gas statute provided sole and exclusive authority to the ODNR, it didn't mean that a company could just show up in a city and start drilling without discussing it with local officials. The way the Department of Natural Resources is construing the statute is kind of uh, an extreme position, given that even cities, even states like Texas and Oklahoma, major oil and gas uh, drillers allow their cities to determine what land is available within the cities for drilling 
and then the state controls the details of the drilling operation. Judges on the case also showed concern about the implications of their ruling. Justice Paul Pfeiffer suggested that the state's reading of the oil and gas statute had elevated the ODNR's director to a godlike status, because local opponents would effectively have no power of appeal in the courts. Here's Justice Pfeiffer questioning Beck Energy attorney John Keller during the oral arguments, which were recorded. This is a pretty important permitting process. So unlike, uh, for example, um, the location of windmills, which goes through the Power Siting Commission, there, there is just, for those who object, there's no place to go. The general... And, and, and what the, yeah, the political solution... But in terms of courts, there is, there is no access to courts, period, right? Because the General Assembly decided in 2004 to give the state the sole and exclusive authority. To be God in this case, right? Pardon? To be God. The, the director of natural resources is God in this case. Heidi Gorovitz Robertson is a professor of law at Cleveland State University. She followed the case closely. Monroe Falls lost. Um, the ordinances were struck down. It was as close as a Supreme Court decision could possibly be. There were three justices in the majority, three in the dissent, and one hanging out in the middle. The one, quote, hanging out in the middle was Chief Justice Terrence O'Donnell. And the situation was what's called a plurality decision. The court couldn't agree on exactly why Monroe Falls lost. What a majority of the justices did agree on was that Beck Energy should be allowed to move forward with drilling on the Willingham's land. Supreme Court Justice William O'Neill, one of the dissenters, saw the decision as a sign that oil and gas companies had swayed lawmakers in the Ohio General Assembly into creating laws in their favor. He wrote in his dissent that, quote, What the drilling industry has bought and paid for in campaign contributions, they shall receive. I spoke with almost two dozen Ohio residents who live near drill sites for this story. And of the people I spoke with, all but a few expressed concern over oil and gas companies using money and their lobbies to sway political opinion in their favor, including Michelle Garman of Vienna, the woman who now lives directly across from a large injection well site. There's a lot of issues around there about, you know, I hear talk about, you know, who, who paid for whose campaign and things like that, uh, which, I mean, that's an issue that goes all the way up, you know, campaign funding. You know, they, they, the special interests pay for people's campaigns, so why do they want to regulate them? An Ohio Supreme Court justice named Judith French wrote the lead opinion in the Monroe Falls versus Beck Energy case. When she ran for election to the Supreme Court, French had received over a million dollars in campaign contributions, including contributions from oil and gas companies. She also received funds from the American Petroleum Institute, which filed a brief supporting Beck Energy in the Monroe Falls case. And another one of her contributors was a law firm called Voris. This is the firm that represents Beck Energy. So Justice French did not remove herself from the bench during Monroe Falls versus Beck Energy. I wanted to hear how Justice French looks at the issue of campaign finance and the courts. The Office of the Justice didn't return my request for interviews. Instead, I went to the state capitol in Columbus to speak with lawmakers and other members of the judiciary. I wanted to know 
what does the state senate and the judiciary think about the growing conflict between state and local laws when it comes to oil and gas? And are campaign contributions part of the problem? There, I sat down with Representative Dan Ramos, who serves the District of Lorain County in northeastern Ohio and supports campaign finance reform. But when energy companies come in here, they have usually they'll have a lobbyist or a team of lobbyists, you know, and come in with the suit and the tie and call you sir and or ma'am and 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 say the same story. We want to bring jobs to your community. This is going to create wealth in your community. This is going to do X, Y, and Z. Ramos says that oil and gas lobbyists help manage those interests, and they keep. They keep up. Have you heard any complaints about this? We're going to have this, this, you know, we're going to have the well, we're going to have the well. If you have any problems, you tell them to call me. You do that. It's, I'm not trying to say they're buying influence, but what they're doing is it's another touch. It's another touch from company X, another touch from company Y, another touch from company Z, and from the general oil and gas lobby saying, hey, I'm your old friend. Remember me? You know, just again, if you have any issues, if anybody has any issues, I'm here. Here's my cell phone. You can get me anytime, day or night. According to Ramos, all of this stems from the fact that political campaigns for public office are financed by individuals and private businesses. Uh, so we need to review the entire thing. Um, I think, I think if we wanted to start somewhere, I think the judiciary would be a reasonable place to do so, just because that is, they're supposed to be, we're all supposed to be impartial. While I was in Ohio, I met with state Supreme Court Justice Paul Pfeiffer, one of the justices who ruled on the Monroe Falls case. We grabbed a booth in the local Bob Evans, a breakfast chain like IHOP or Denny's, and I asked him, do judicial elections influence decisions made on the court? Justice Pfeiffer. I, I never felt more like a hooker down by the bus station than I uh, did when I was running uh, for the Supreme Court. Justice Pfeiffer says he doesn't think campaign contributions from oil and gas interests played a role in how justices decided the Monroe Falls versus Beck Energy case. But he does say that special interest money in campaigns has affected how judges have voted in the past. Um, I'm just following. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's indirect. Uh, the folks that I serve with and the folks I've served with in the past would uh, deny it. Um, but it's how they got there. Uh, it, it's uh, million dollar efforts by independent expenditure groups. What's clear right now is that Ohioans like Pat McCrudden from Westwood Lake and Michelle Garman of Vienna don't have a lot of say when a drill site pops up in their town. Back in Vienna, at one point during my interview with Michelle Garman, she tells me to get up and walk to the window. We both crouch down to look out. Garmin's front yard is an empty, marshy field, bordered by a fence. Beyond the fence is a large plot of land the size of a football field. And in the middle of it, a tower of steel piping that makes up the injection well. When the well was being built, Garmin says, stadium-style lighting from the well side flooded into her kitchen at all hours. She says her son Dominic is concerned about the safety of the well, too. And he asks her, what if the kind of contamination that happened down the road also happens in their backyard? And he gets very bent out of shape about it. He gets very, you know, we, maybe I talked about it too much around him. I don't know. But, um, you know, he does. He says, you know, what's going to happen to me? 
You know, is this going to cause problems for me? Am I, you know, am I in danger? Is this dangerous? Garmin says that at the end of the day, it's her son that she's the most worried about. Since he's been little, I've been, you know, the mama bear or whatever. You know, I've solved all the problems. Don't worry. It's on me. I got it. And it scares me because this is one I don't think I can just solve. For Life of the Law, I'm Jonathan Hirsch. I say, water, water, wave your story over under till the morning. And lead me, lead me to where that you go home. And I, I will fear no evil. You're listening to part one of Life of the Law's two-part election year special on a fair fight for a fair court. We just heard Jonathan Hirsch's report, Rig the System, on the challenges faced by voters in Ohio over who to elect to their state Supreme Court and how their decisions will ultimately decide how local concerns and issues such as who can drill for oil and where will be decided by that court. Next time on Life of the Law, we'll return with part two of our election year series and we'll visit Wisconsin, North Carolina, and return to Kansas. Part one of our series on a fair fight for a fair court was reported by Ashley Gleek and Jonathan Hirsch and edited by Annie Avilas with sound design and production by Shawnee Avaram and Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors were Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel, Rachel Kane, and Alyssa Bernstein. We want to thank members of our advisory panel of scholars and our advisory board, Brittany Bottorf, Ellen Horn, and Osagi Obasagi for their support. Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman were our engineers. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Write a review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. Our two-hour, two-part series on a fair fight for a fair court is now available for public radio stations to download and share on their airwaves at PRX, Public Radio Exchange. This series is funded in part by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Your tax-deductible gift to Life of the Law makes this series possible. If you like the work we're doing, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a gift of a dollar, ten dollars, twenty, fifty, or a hundred. Make a recurring gift that will sustain and make it possible for Life of the Law to report stories about the law in our lives in months to come. We are in this together. Next on Life of the Law, part two in our two-hour election year special on a fair fight for a fair court. I definitely think justice can be bought. I think they're bought every day. That's next on Life of the Law. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and make a gift to Life of the Law to cover the costs of producing this series and the stories to come. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Fear no evil. I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil.